Welcome to this episode of the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Today, I am extremely happy to be joined by Michelle Langlois, Chief Development Officer for Calix, leading network provider of cloud and software platforms, systems, and services. Welcome, Michelle. Hello. Glad to be here. To give context to, to what you're doing, can, can you give maybe people a sense of where you've come from, how you got started in the business, and where you've been over the years? How I got started is interesting. I'm old enough these days to say I saw the first generation of PC ever showing up. I was at university at the time, and I remember the, vividly the day where I didn't have to carry a bunch of carts to put in the machine for batch processing. So came a PC. And you can imagine, you know, first installation of PC and Microsoft. Uh, what was fascinating at the time was like, for the first time, I felt I could essentially control this environment and do different things with it. So I was born in the late era, the early days of the PC. And at the time, you couldn't even call my profession computer engineering or computing science. We were electrical engineer that happened to have now a computer on the desk. So I got started like that. Uh, but you have to understand my approach of software programming at the time, put aside the language that uh, they all disappear and I learned a bunch of dinosaur language, you know, you know, Fortran, Pascal, I mean, you name all those things, I did all of them, was there was so much constraint on the resource of CPU memory and that you have to program the processor in such a way that you were really efficient. So I was born in a generation where the best engineer could literally squeeze a program in half the size of the mediocre one. And I also saw also my limitation that I wasn't bad, but I was far from being the person that could basically do a program in half the size. So it kind of gave me a, a bad taste about my skill to say, hmm, if I want to come to stay in that business, what do I want to do? And I realized I was more interested in solving the algorithm, organizing the work, than writing the machine. But you have to remember, I was born at the time where resources are scarce. You have to be really understand the implication of your code on what it consumes and it does. And that's something over the years that when I saw you know, building larger system, I felt we have lost the plot. I was missing the generation of engineer that could realize that the consuming capacity, resource, they can do trade-off, they could do different thing. And it, I will argue it became too easy for them to, ah, you know, it's just another million of, no, one meg of memories, who cares? And we'll have another one if we blows that. So I was born into this age where, you know, you were landing on the moon, a program, and he had like, I don't know, 60K of memory. That's it. And he had to come back. So amazing time, if you want. Absolutely. And as I understand it, you got your start in Canada? Yeah, started in Canada. I looked like any Canadian. and I needed to find a, a sector, so I went into the telecom. It was the early days where uh, voice was king. So I, working at Nortel, I worked into SS7 type of technology, which gave me, by the way, all the basis to understand mission-critical fault tolerance, patching, upgrade. A lot of the concept of the mainframe to some extent came from that time with a little bit of flavor of distribution. And it's a fascinating thing I can fast forward to now is 
I still approach failure on the network the same way I approached it 30 years ago. And so I don't depend on my ability to look at the code to find the problem, but more my analytic to say, well, if it fails, what could I have contributed to that? So it's a system view versus you know, root cause. A root cause, if you say. Uh, and then you made your way to Cisco. Yeah, uh, and that was almost by accident. We, we, I was in a company where, in one point of time, you know, mainframe, bridge, gateways, all technology that were essential to connect computer to uh, their data system were born. Happened that we hear one time that there's this little technology called routing and switching. Uh, why don't we partner with those guys, which was at the time we were bigger than them, and we thought it would be maybe a good idea to OEM or buy the code. And didn't happen. But what's happened is I must have said something intelligent enough or <laughs> that they invited me to say, why don't you come talking to us? And from there landed this opportunity to land in Silicon Valley. You were there during the uh, true crossing the chasm days. Yeah, look, uh, I lived the bubble days. I lived the crazy expansion from the internet and the web to kind of change everything in terms of disruption. So you, you can imagine you get the period of time where it's the golden age to be in the networking space you everything is centric on your business the valuation is crazy uh, which at the time i didn't appreciate that i thought i was a good manager but ultimately it wasn't too hard to motivate people if you say i'm going to give you stock and one day you could be a millionaire it's silicon valley remember that's the dream come true but uh, i used to say to people is I manage huge group, I had the opportunity to have huge budget, but I never understood constraint. It was really easy. You were just asking for what you need and you were getting it and or you were acquiring what you could not do. And so it was crazy time. And then the bubble burst. And the bubble burst. And when it's happened, it was interesting. Uh, it was my first time where I remember sitting, what's happened to us? And I can tell you that it wasn't that we didn't have the data to show that there's something bizarre happening with the business. It was just like it was so much off mark that we didn't know what to do with it. We thought, it, is it a blink? Is it more systemic than that? Is it an epitome, if you want? We, we never seen it. And everybody around us were just saying, yeah, forget about it and move on. So we were not prepared for that. But what was interesting is when the bubble bursts, your revenue go from 42 billion to 12 billion. You have done to do layoff. You started to see how do we reconstruct the business? Or at the time, I remember, was there an afterlife after the bubble? What right. become the value of networking if ultimately it wasn't just enabling the web? So we have to go back to the fundamental of what it is and rebuild a business. Well, it certainly came back over the years. And then you were leading the, the main area of basically running the internet over at Cisco with five, 6,000 engineers under you. During those days at scale, what was it like trying to create product development? Because essentially that's a big part of what we're talking about today is product development and how hard it is, especially as you think about software. What are some of the things that really stood out from that time working with John Chambers and these people at Cisco? A thing without knowing at the time, because look, the, the terminology wasn't really established, but we knew there was a network effect. 
if you build something in the network, essentially you can replicate that effect across enterprise, service provider, consumer, if you want, because there was a network element of connectivity everywhere. You couldn't get to your business or your traffic without that network element. At the time, the strategy we thought we would pursue was, why don't we build a platform? And the reason we did a platform versus other plays is we didn't want to always have to compete to say we have the best box, if you want. Because this industry was defined into price, performance, and density. Everybody was building their own chipset to achieve the scale of the internet, etc. But it's, it's a difficult business because there's somebody, always somebody that had a better system at the time. It's like a race car, if you want. You have the best for this year, come the next generation after, you're the tail versus the front. So we, we took an approach to build software as a platform with the idea that if you build it once, you leverage across multiple products. So when, when somebody was asking me what, what's the most important thing for me in, in large software development, it was a reuse. If I cannot figure out a reuse of that piece of code, I used to call everything a Lego. If that Lego is custom made, for one purpose, its value is not that great for me because I don't get you know, the multiplier I want. So everything became Legos, which led into component, which led into who owns the component, and ultimately can I create a system where one day I don't have to build it myself, which was at the time was not really conceivable because you have to go back 20 to 25 years. Networking was not even taught in, in school. IP protocol were a science where, you know, it's magic. You go into those So how do you find the talent? We had to train them. We have to basically, I, I remember the days where I said, what was my onboarding with my own team? So imagine I, I come from Quebec. They don't even know where Quebec is. And they say, you coming in Silicon Valley to do what? To teach us what to do? And I say, Pretty much because I read all the book from you guys. I guess I can probably play the language. But my onboarding was, say, how do I start? Uh, show me the architecture. Show me the diagram. And I remember somebody said, read the code. So what do you mean read the code? Well, it's all in the code. So we don't have documentation. We don't have notes. It's dribble knowledge. If you're smart, you'll figure out how the system works. So that was my first mission. But you have to imagine at the time the code was 5 million of line of code. So that aspect of triple knowledge was interesting in one way because if you could make the club to understand the logic, you were getting trust and respect right away as a pro. So it was a lot more immersive for people to say, if I cannot graduate to that level where people now know, I understand the logic, I figure out by myself, I figure out by having the right people, I have no chance to ever write a single line by myself. Well, it's a crucible. You run yeah. the gauntlet, you get through it, and yeah, exactly. you survive. You, you were essentially plunged into this, survival of the fitness. But then when you graduate, then what was interesting, and there was not really a sense of limitation. People will allow you to touch area as long as you don't break the code or you don't break the ability to build it. If you were doing those mistakes, you were out. It was, there was no HR process other than the code is our intellectual property. Preserve it, nurture it, 
think about what's going to come after. So I, I find the engineer at that time, despite they were a little bit hard to work with, had concept of survivability. Their intellectual property needed to be transferred. So they were pretty good to document in the code, not in documentation or PowerPoint or anything like that. That for them was waste. Uh, so, like I said, you go from trivial knowledge to community of interest to, oh, now suddenly you're a company that acquiring company and they want to integrate a bunch of things into this. Yeah, at that time, you were, you were acquiring companies, was it one a month at one point? Well, look, over the, you know, the 15 years I was there, there was like 120 acquisitions. Mm -hmm. And some were small boutique where... You are acquiring a you know, specialty, a piece of code, easy to integrate. It's usually something there was no overlap. Down to you were acquiring company that had a large code base too. And then it was essentially how you merge those things. In fact, what became the brand? I remember uh, people were asking me, how do you define a platform? Is it this look and feel? So in my world, I didn't have a user interface. In fact, the CLI, the command interface, was the syntax for people to understand how to program the system. So think about it. You, you load a, a, a networking gears. The command you type tell the system what it's going to be. So we created a business around something called a CLI, the command line interface, that was literally like a mainframe green front, if you want. And all those business units ran off your... And all system. those business have to learn a common syntax. And our customer had to learn how to program to this. And in fact, one of the things we did well at the time is it was so complex to learn networking that we decided to create an academy to train our customer with the goal literally to glue them to that user interface. So for them, if somebody was asking me, what is iOS? Oh, that's the CLI. And I said, no, iOS is all the brain, the control plane, the data plane, the management. You essentially ran 80% of the internet for a while. Yeah, that was interesting. Well, I used to joke is we carry, I, I was at the time where a few companies could do these things or in the right place at the right time, if you want. We don't have really a market to protect like the IBM at the time that could have done the same thing with, you know. But I used to say, yes, we carry 80% of the traffic with the drawback that I probably melt down every network in the world. So... Then it's the kind of Spider-Man analogy with great power become great responsibility. So I used to say to my engineer, for a long time, we got away with failure in the network or because we were claiming IP is best effort. I never committed to deliver your packets, so don't blame me. But as IP became centric, and by IP, I don't mean intellectual property. I mean the internet packet protocol. When it became the language to carry all type of traffic, the notion of mission critical change. That's when I got to know you. Yeah. And you had to. Yeah. To I have now to re-educate folks, not only to write system, to write protocol that do different thing and different form factor or place in the network. We had to change a little bit about the notion of failure and the consequence of those failure, because there was two consequences. If it fails, it's impact traffic and impact revenue, but also how complex is it to restore? Because you cannot just do the trick of well, reboot. <laughs> Remember those days? I well, just reboot it. <laughs> I never guaranteed that I'm going to be up anyway. So it changed a lot in the way into 
how do you do redundancy? How do you do failover? How do you do an approach where if some system screw up, there's a, you know, a fallback scenario? So, they, so it became more than just the protocol to connect, but the technique to basically build highly available system. And to heal. Yeah. And to be able to say that if they fail, how can I restore around it? Or ideally, how this thing could not impact the rest of the traffic. Mm-hmm. And there was different ways to do this. You could do it through hardware redundancy. You could have it through two brain that will communicate to make sure they're still there. But the, the, the complexities was not simply into developing the technology, but making essentially these new notion of availability, serviceability to a level where essentially you can recover from, from failure. Let's fast forward a little bit. You then went to a smaller company to, to step in, not a small company, but Juniper, to add software quality in a new way. Can you comment about that experience and transformation? Well, it was interesting because ultimately the way I described the, the, that period of time is you like Star Wars, there's you know, the good guy and the bad guy, you know, the trooper versus you know, Dark Vader and etc. So imagine one day Dark Vader comes to Luke Skywalker and say, I'm going to be your commander in chief now. I'm transitioning the other side. It will have been a free for all. And what was interesting is my goal was to some extent, I remember the founder telling me, whatever you do, make sure you don't make the same mistake that you did before. And from another side of the company is whatever you do, make sure we are as successful that you were before. This is a little context. Essentially, you went from Cisco, the the Darth Vader, the the Empire, to the the Rebel Alliance. Yeah, exactly. You, you went to Juniper, which, which was a have, high end niche provider. Yeah, which has essentially made was proud of itself to be the high performance company that we do it in the different ways. We do it the right way. What was hard in that context was not to understand potentially all things to come. Because I mean, what's interesting when you have execute at scale is there's an element of processes that you know you're going to hit the wall. You know, If you don't change your methodology or your approach, you hit the limit of how you can assemble things, let's say, in the factory. Then there's a human factor, how you organize the work. Then there's an organizational structure that you have to think about. So a lot of what I could see, I could see, I'm going to step into the same problem of the past, which is good because I've been there, done that. I've seen that movie. What was hard is, how do I describe that in a company which is, I've yet to hit the wall, even if they don't know they're that close. And that's why, you know, I don't know, by luck or destiny, when, when I reach out for you is, I needed a third party to basically present data and analytic in such a way that People could not see I was biased into my old religion. I was embracing the new, but I could demonstrate to really smart engineer that there's some need to do what we're going to do. Once again, you're listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. We're here with Michelle Langlois, Chief Development Officer at Calix. Yeah, Michelle, I remember stepping into that, that building with you and you just wanted this very, almost a scientific, at least objective approach to let somebody know that they're about to hit an iceberg that they can't quite see. Yeah, and it, and it was interesting is, so I remember when I first asked a question, tell me what's broken. And you can imagine I'm Dark Vader breathing in my big mask, and I'm 5'7", by the way, I'm not a big <laughs> Dark Vader, not Jeff. Uh, nobody will tell me the truth. We don't have any problem. So I say, okay, 
change the approach and change the question. And I remember the day I said, okay, if we don't have any problem, how are we going to do that four times the volume? The moment I asked that question, which is turn it around to say, I remember the 3X. Remember, we used to say, if we're going to be successful beyond our aspiration, let's build right now what it's going to take to have three times the number of product, three times more people, three times more capabilities. And the other thing that you had was four releases per year and not one. Yeah. That was and huge. we're going to basically build everything at the same time, four times a year to a pace of innovation that nobody can touch. And the reason I'm highlighting this, even though it's, it's a few years ago, is it's not often that there's something at scale, a $4 billion company. This is large, but yet not such a behemoth. And they're literally at that point where it's, it's hard to get it right, and yet you can still look down and see all the moving parts. Yeah, and, it, and it's hard also. It's a human nature to see the success that the, the company I was joining was such that you don't want to feel that you need to change the recipe. You have to be really gutsy to say it's time to change when everybody say, no, 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 let's ride it for another 10 years. We, we have that room to go. But it was interesting when we changed the question, we start seeing different response. And the problem became now that we have so much input of what is not working that how you organize the work. And remember, like I was getting pages and pages of broken thing. Then you're like, well, how do we start? And then we were like, okay, what well, we're going to do, a voting system, a stack rank system. And then you guys came and remember the dialogue to say, why don't we group pain point, bucket of pain point to say, if I say there's like 60 category of things I could do, where's the best return for the buck? And I remember we grouped things into big circle versus small. We had different color code. And ultimately what was interesting is when we start showing to people Based on our analysis, we're going to start there versus the easy thing. Everybody, my surprise, didn't say, oh, yeah, it makes totally sense. Yeah, I think the reason I bring it up isn't so much the case study uh, thread as much as you had some of the most intelligent engineers I've ever seen working who kind of like to pick apart arguments. So the level of logic and rigor uh, that was required. And I think the big takeaway, at least I remember from that period, was that there was so much about the people side of this that you did things so the people behaviorally and psychologically would get on board as much as for the logic and the accuracy of it. Yeah. So, so it was interesting because it didn't play the way I thought. I thought that I needed first to get the engineer on my side. Because remember, I'm Dark Vader and see, if I don't get the trooper embarking the mission, ultimately they're the one doing mm-hmm. the work. So... The analytic we had and also the way to group the data gave us a ways to convince them that there's basis to do what we needed to do. Where personally I made the mistake was I thought we were aligning across the company to do it. And ultimately it wasn't a case of misalignment of the end state of the mission. It was the duration of the mission. Because the problem is, is you have to look at large system into they get into pain point. It's like a human buddies. How many times you go to the doctor where the doctors say, take your medicine. By the way, what I mean by take the medicine is the moment you feel better, keep taking your medicine. So the challenge I was having more like we started to see it's brutal. We have to you know, stop the factory, rethink the factory, rethink the approach, the model, the processes. But a year after on a three years plan, the patients start to heal. 
So management, traditional ways of thinking is to say there's another shiny object to chase. Why don't we redirect all this to that instead? That's the tough thing is the will to finish the job. And even with engineers, why don't we go back to the old habits, right? I'm out of the emergency mode, feeling I'm healing, but I don't want to change anything. So ultimately, you're back to emergency mode after a period of time. And we, t- we spoke about this. I remember we talked like that. Well, I bring it up because what impressed me the most about the way you handled that was you kept going to the board, little to the board, in ways that kept reinforcing it. So even after they were healing, uh, they did it long enough that it really took root. Yeah. So look, I, I, I think in insight, by having the upper management and the board buying in the story is critical for success because ultimately you have to resurrect investment in order to do it and you have to sustain it. The insight I didn't have at the time is I thought that if management is on board, upper management, and the troopers are buying into we're going to have a better life after we do these things, going to be painful, but there's a hand of, I thought I was done. What I forget is there's something called middle management there that I didn't necessarily anticipate how they're going to react to that. Yes, good old middle management. Yeah. Fast forwarding it a little farther uh, now with Calix, it's really interesting what you're trying to do at the edge. Can you describe the, the business problem that you're trying to solve for the company and then also your, your role within the company and what you're trying to do with product development? Ultimately, I'm in a company that sells a piece of the networking sector called the broadband. So broadband used to be called the last mile. Essentially, last mile, it used to be what connect you from your home to a central office or a head end, where after that, the rest of the network connect you to your content. So the last mile always been challenging because depending of the physical layer, will it be coax or VDSL or fiber or mobile, it dictates your experience to some extent. Depending on the size of that pipe, you get different capacity, different speed, different reach. What's hard in the broadband environment is you have to build it in the city and outside the city. So ultimately, you build network and infrastructure that takes decades to build. So you have to build equipment that lasts a really long time and live out there. I mean, they're not in the data center. So when I went to Calix, the approach was interesting for me to say, my mission wasn't just to try to reinvent or take the recipe from bigger company and apply it to the smaller, learn how to compete in a world of open source, in a world of commoditization, in a world of you know, how, how you basically change the approach of differentiated value, was more around the service provider themselves are in a crisis because they have defined that value historically as a plumber. I'm the plumber. You don't really have a choice, by the way, depending where you work, live, and play. And you'll get what I'm willing to invest because ultimately you have no place to go. So for a long time, their view of the consumer, you at home, was essentially a connection. Then you pay me monthly. And what I'm trying to do is to decide when you're willing to pay more for more bandwidth and not a lot of alternative to change vendors. So for them, a consumer was not really you. It was the device you were connecting their association become, I'm the internet service provider connecting your device to the content. It was never an association about who are you behind that device. Fast forward now is, wow, 
for me, having to connect 67 of your device at home doesn't tell me anything about you until I know when you're doing with your persona at the time you use your device, are you a consumer doing Amazon shopping? Are you somebody doing uh, working at home, a telecommuter? Are you doing mission-critical transaction, banking, you name it? Is now, it's not the device that I'm looking at. I'm trying to figure out the persona you are at the time, what you're doing, and ultimately, if I can figure out how you use your device to do what at the time of the day, how often I start having all the analytic about you. But service provider never went there. To some extent, they let the over-the-top do this. So what's, what's interesting in my business is we start for the first time to realize that the notion of a telecommunication service provider is going to fade. It's going to be less about the plumbing, but more about the value that you feel compelled to give them your business. And you have few choice. You're going to either give it to the retail, go buy your own equipment and plug it, you're going to go over the, over the top, the Amazon or the Google to provide that experience for you. Or you're going to basically say, I would like one aggregator of it, one person to call to say, make it happen in my house. I want a smart home, but I don't want to be the IT person to do it. And that's the crisis they have to live now. If they only try to compete on price performance, density, HARPU and CAPEX, efficiency, productivity gain, if you want, it's not going to give them any con consumer association. So we're trying to redefine the business model of the service provider. In the process, if I can figure out who's going to win in the future, which services they're going to do, you can imagine then the problem is, do I build the right solution for them? So I can use into imagine an end state of a new class of service provider. Then I can redefine my portfolio in the different ways. And what's great is, I'm only focused on a piece of networking called access. I don't have to protect other business. So if I go into, if I had to start again from a clean sheet of paper, I wouldn't protect my market. I wouldn't try to limit what you can do. I will try to end up into the best solution and then back away into how do I get you there from where you are into the new. So you imagine now you have to rethink the portfolio, you have to rethink the approach. And I still now have to compete with people way bigger than me. So I don't have my big 8,000 people. I'm down to a few hundred. And then in that new world, I have to look into how much I can leverage the industry, how much I'm willing to not just partner in the sense that you do something for me, but I keep my name on it, is am I willing to share the pie for a bigger success as a you know, success-based model? And then after that is, am I willing to commoditize myself to a point that my value is not to try to build everything as a single vendor solution and lock you in? So I'm dealing with different level of complexity. I want to talk about people for a second because Silicon Valley is often about the IP or about the, the software. What are you seeing? Because I understand in the past, even for some of the FANG companies like Facebook and Google and the others, where you did mentoring for some of their technical talent and leadership as they were small companies. What are you seeing about the next generation of technical capability and leadership in the Valley? And what's your comment? So observation, because look, I kind of had the luxury to have generation of <laughs> people, if you want. What's different? I think if I go back, let's say, early days in the Valley, 30 years ago, because there was no written book that you just reuse the recipe, I think these engineers were a little bit like 
the first kind of explorer that tried to create to see the new world. They hear there's a new continent if you want. It's urban legend, but you know, I'm, I, I need to jump on the boat and I need to go across. And by the way, the moment I go, there's no coming back. I need to land. So I think they were more capable to take complex problem and try to figure out a solution because they were ultimately engineers that like to solve. The next generation where I see right now, it's interesting, is I like their ability to question everything. So ultimately, they're less interested in to solving, but why are you asking me to do that, by the way? I get a lot more into, because look, I do skip session. I do meet the boss. I meet the, and the question I get from the young people tends to be more around the business side of it. Don't get what we built. We did that. Can you tell me why we didn't get the return you thought you, when you kind of excite us to build it, you, you went with you no know, projection. How come we're not achieving this? And by the way, why is the salespeople not working harder to sell this? I would have never have got those questions with the older generation. I would have got more questions into need more resource, more capacity, this and that. So I think, I think there's a freedom of thought. They're much more inclined to business. What I'm questioning is do they have the will to do the hard work and stick around? They are a little bit more entitled in terms of, well, I've done my part. I'm out. I'll see you Monday if you want. So it's interesting. I uh, want to bring things to a bit of a close. If you had advice for, for people out there listening, especially in similar situations, someone's leading a transformation or, or they're leading a product development organization, what are the three things that people should think about? When you hear somebody to tell you, what do you do in the first six months of company? Build the plan, the 90 days plan. I will say, go do that. Because this is, if you're coming from outside versus inside, it's a different dynamic. You have one chance because you're neutral to people that they're going to tell you the truth if you position your question the right way. So you have to do all level of management and employee and talk to the customer and the people that, that use your product. I say, do that first. What you're probably going to find out is it doesn't take you six months to figure out the broken toy, if you want. Then the challenge becomes how you're going to make the argument to do it. You go to the board or you go to the upper management, get the funding and get the structure that allows you to do the work. And my best advice will be line up right away, not just the investment pieces, but what's going to give. Because a lot of people are going to say, well, it's okay if there's no new money, we're going to do it. But it's much more powerful. You could say, we don't have no choice something needs to give. And by the way, I propose we put these things on the back burner. The moment you do this is where the tension starts because now you're forcing trade-off and you're forcing a change of thing. But I will encourage you to do that. The third thing I will do after that is can do it alone. Get benchmark with the industry. Get partner that are going to do the work. Become global. It's critical. Look, as much as I like co-location and everybody's in the same place, it's impossible to run it this way. I'm after the best island. I'll be honest. The best island, half of them cannot even live in the valley. It's too expensive. It's, the wave is done. The valuation is crazy. I mean, it's like living in New York or San Francisco. So ultimately, I have to find the best island where they are, motive them, motivate them, and also create a culture with them. So I will spend more time on the culture. And then last advice, get rid of the toxic right away. You will know the toxic people within your first six months. 
you will fall into the belief they might change. And I'm telling you, they will never change. I should have done way better in this area than think that with passion and commitment and aloe effect or the great migration where everybody run in a state beat in the same way they're going to flow. They are not. Take them out and do it fast. Well, on that happy note, we'll uh, <laughs> break things in a little bit. Well, one question, I guess, personally, you spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, uh, and yet you don't seem to have gotten trapped in the echo chamber that we hear a lot about. Uh, have you kept your perspective and your sanity? What was fascinating for me is the people that will do the right thing for a company versus the right thing for themselves. I've seen two paths for people. Grab the mask first and only keep it for yourself or breathe and share it and make the rest of the group happy. There's a big difference between reward, compensation, success, depending if the egos, if you're a leader that about yourself versus about, uh, look, I was born into what's the mission. Let's make the right thing happen. Do it right the first time, as opposed to be opportunistic and to trash the other person to get into it. And But the thing in the value, which I will say is, look, there's always somebody smarter than you. The moment you can figure out that, it's much more into how do you convince somebody smarter than you to join you or to be part of the journey. That's the reward for me. Success, you expect compensation. It's the valley has its own dynamic and intricity. If you want, it's, it's like an <laughs> obscene community where everybody knows what everybody does. But on the other end, there is an attribute of innovation that I've yet to be copied from Silicon Valley. And, and I think part of it was embrace risk and change and disruption. So as long as we don't lose that, we'll do well. But it's a little bit different. It's not as easy as you get a big VC funding and you get found 100 million and you guarantee to hire a smart engineer. It's more and more I see people choosing company into the mission and built it to last as opposed to do cash out, mercenary, move to the next one. So changing, which is good. One question to, to wrap up. Who or, or what has been a big influence on your career and, and why, on your life? Well, look, I, I think it's great if you can find a mentor of some sort. At the time, I didn't know the term, but there was always somebody that will help me to understand the temperature of the group, where do you go, basically the connector, if you want. You find this mentor that connect you to the rest of the fabric and has nothing to do with title, by the way. Don't fall into the title as the mentor. Wah, 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 wah. They're going to expose you to your ways of thinking way faster than you know, training or whatever. So find your mentor and also listen to the leader that can create passion. Got the luxury to work for great CEOs. At the time, I remember I thought a lot of those things was like religion. Yeah, it's just noise. I'm an engineer, but they shape my principle now that I'm a little bit older. It's amazing how much I can go back to some of the principle I heard during you know, the Chambers days, the, the Cisco days, the, we hit the wall at Juniper and so on. And the service provider at the time that were dominating the industry is, it shaped your thinking because it was always fascinating to see when it wasn't about them. I really have seen fantastic CEO that were just starting with the eye. It was the company, put the customer first, shareholder value, all of this, it's, that shape you. Because ultimately what I learned is it's great when the business goes well. It's bad when you impact family. And until you are not capable to admit that, 
every time you have to take a human action on giving a pink slip to somebody, it's a knack of a failure that you didn't deliver on your commitment to them, right? It's, that's hard. And I hope that it never become a casualty of wars, where some of my colleagues at the time say, ah, get rid of that. It's, you know, we won the war, but there's a human factor that you have to be able to fact to make sure that everybody benefits, if you want. Michelle, thank you so much. Um, if people want to find you online, uh, could you maybe give them your email address? Yeah, look, it's as long as you can spell my name, it's michel.langlois at calix.com. And you know, send me something on LinkedIn. I, I love to talk. It'll be on uh, the show notes as well. Everyone, you've been listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Thanks to our producer, Catherine Burdett, and the entire Knowledge Institute team. Until next time, keep learning and keep sharing.